0: This little light i found Take it in and breathe it out A little drum that's beating loud In my chest I hear the sound
1: Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host,
0: Mr. Patrick Green. Hi, Patrick Hello. Green. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. You know, uh, things here on the East Coast are temporarily hot for some reason, which is climate change, and it's going to be freezing cold again in the next couple of days. But I'm trying to, you know, appreciate the weather, get outside a little bit, and, uh, you know, do my final episode, catch up on Black Lotus in time to talk about it tonight. Awesome. And... uh Yeah, I finished them.
1: It's also been freezing here during the day, which means it's been 56.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which is actually the exact temperature that it was today over here.
1: That's funny. Uh, Yeah. uh, So here we are, ladies and gentlemen, and all of them, all those in between um, to discuss Black Lotus, the last half of the episodes. We discussed the first discussed and reviewed the first six episodes a couple of months ago, and we just. Needed to wait so we could watch them and finish up and just a bit of a, not a warning, not really a content warning, but we probably will skew a little bit negative in this episode. It's not because we're trying to sit here and shit on it. We just, we didn't respond as positively as we would like. There are some good, there are some good things in this. We will discuss the, we will discuss what those are and how they affected us and what we did like. Unfortunately, there's a lot we didn't. Um, and we're going to also get into that. And there's a lot writing on Black Lotus in terms of you know since we've discussed Black Lotus the first round, there's been an announcement as you ever as everyone knows of a new series coming from Amazon called Blade Runner 2099, which is a live action series, which is a sequel series that's a follow up to 2049. So Black Lotus is the only pseudo it's not live action i mean it's animated but it's the only thing kind of bridging the two right now and there's a lot riding on it success um so we want to kind of talk about whether or not it was successful by and large um i know patrick you you were talking earlier about rotten tomato scores and we can get into some of those in terms of what the audience thinks what just the aggregate rating for the show is it's not very positive there are people who do really enjoy the show some hardcore Blade Runner fans love it a lot of them don't I guess we should get into the story first right like what happens we can it's pretty general
0: it is pretty general uh so where we left things off in the previous episode was we we finished with episode six which which for me is still a high point I think six is, is great I think nine is great uh, and I think that there are there are some moments in this show that I, I actually adore. There really are. There's there's, you know, there's themes in it that I really like a lot. There's moments in it that I like a lot. Uh, I, I, you know, am trying to temper myself a little bit to not be overly negative because I, I hate this archetype of the kind of angry super fan. That's something that I'm sensitive to. It's something that bothers me a lot when I hear it and it's something that I don't want to evince right now. And so I'm kind of getting that out there because I, I I think you did a great job of summing up where people are on this, which is all over the map. I know plenty of people who are very into Blade Runner, as you mentioned, who absolutely love the show, who are really into it, who accept it all as, you know, like this great new part of canon, who are, you know, really into a lot of the new characters who have, you know, done fan art of people like Water Lily and, you know, characters that exist only in the universe that Black Lotus has introduced us to. It is really, for a lot lot of people it is really hitting on all of the notes um for for many of us you know we're a little bit more in this place of trying to reconcile you know some of our expectations and some of the things that didn't land the way we wanted them to land with the fact that you know it is here now and it is part of our legacy as Blade Runner fans and like we we do have to reckon with that and we have to look for the things in it to either you know take with us or to kind of shed off at least in terms of our you know personal headcanons um So we left things off. So yeah, that's just to say, if I sound negative tonight, I, I do actually apologize. And I don't want the way that I come across to. Yeah.
1: I just want to push back on one term that we're using that I think we should rethink the term negative. I don't think I don't believe that being overly critical is being negative. And I know we kind of live in this world where in fandom, it's you either you love something or you don't. We're going to be critical of this. But we love Blade Runner. We love the world of black that Black Lotus creates. We're critical of the storytelling within that world, and I think we need to make sure people know that and that we know that, um, because oftentimes people can shut down criticism as negativity, and I I I wholly reject that. I I am negative. I am, I almost said it again. I am passionately critical about worlds I absolutely adore. I love Alien so much. I love the world so much. There's so much in Covenant I love, as you know, but I'm passionately critical about it. There's so much in Prometheus that I absolutely fucking adore, and I am passionately critical about that movie, and I don't think it's successful. So I feel like we should recognize that, and we've done a really good job in Perfect Organism, and the show as well. Making a name for ourselves, like if there's no black and white. There's an in-between. And sometimes we fall into that in-between. And even with 2049, as much as we loved that movie, you had some issues with the CG for Rachel. You didn't buy it. But you still loved that movie. And it's one of your all-time favorite films. And I was reading something because I read a lot of self-help quotes for work because I do a lot of content writing for work. Um, and they're talking about usually the people who love something the most are the most critical about it as well. And that the two, you can be critical about something and also love it passionately. They're not, they don't cancel each other out. So I feel like it's important as we continue in this, probably it's going to be a little bit shorter episode because we don't have a ton to say. And what we do isn't, is, is adversely critical, but. We love Blade Runner and we always will. Um, And we're excited about what's coming and we're excited that Black Lotus exists. It's just it didn't work for us. And so I feel like we can we have the right and the ability to be critical about this in a really constructive way um, while also loving the world that, that it's into. So there's my soapbox.
0: Yeah. No, I, I love that soapbox. I'm totally on board with that. And I think that it's a good reminder that we do not have to always exist in camps that are opposed to each other. And I think that we live in a culture where that is really valued a lot and it's to the detriment of a lot of us. I, I think this idea of being critical without necessarily like putting a flag in the sand of being like, I am against this thing or, you know, I am for this and anything critical is an attack on me. Right. Mm-hmm. That's something that many of us, myself very much included, fall into all the time whether it's with, you know, political things or cultural things or whether it's with um, entertainment. And at the end of the day, that is something that's good to be reminded of. So going back to, to what I was saying uh, before I cut myself off about 20 minutes ago, uh, we left this story off where Elle had just blown up the police chief's apartment and Marlowe had been, you know, uh, intercepting that situation. She was injured. We had Davis catching up with her. And then we go, you know, Elle goes back to um, stay with Joseph to recuperate. And we start kind of gradually through the next few episodes. Well, first off, we get like a, a big recap episode, which is which is helpful, but maybe you know a little reductive. But it's helpful to kind of see how Davis has been observing what's going on, and then we see uh, quite a bit more about Joseph's past, which we hadn't really gotten to that point. We learn, of course, that he's a you know an ex Blade Runner. He's he's a, a retired Blade Runner, but retired in you know terms of not working anymore, not in terms of retirement in the Blade Runner universe. Uh, we get some more of his history with Marlowe. We get some more of his, his of his history with replicants and what kind of led to some changes in his heart. Uh, we you know have the revelation that was telegraphed pretty consistently throughout the entire rest of the series that Wallace was behind the Black Lotus tattoo and that he you know had engineered her. Um, Of course, he also then goes on to engineer uh, an antagonist to her in the form of this this Lily White Lily character, Um, and uh, they fight and uh, love and love. L goes (laughs) to the Wallace headquarters. Uh, She ends up killing Wallace Senior, which was apparently what Neander Wallace Junior had in mind the entire time—that she was going to be his angel of death. And that uh, she was then supposed to be terminated or retired by this White Lotus character, who, or White Lily character, who then she beats in combat. So Wallace is conflicted about that. She then slices Neander Wallace's eyes somehow. I guess maybe just abrades the cornea a little bit, but not the bridge of his nose. So he loses his <laughs> eyesight. Oh,
1: isn't that interesting? It goes, doop, doop. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't really, I don't really know how that works. But, you know, who knows? And uh, Joseph blows a bunch of shit up in the replicant manufacturing center and kills himself in the process. Uh, Elle goes on the run and we get the, uh, she defeats White Lotus in the process of all this, or White Lily. Goes on the run, goes to the desert um, and we get, you know, Fade to smash End credits for the series, which, of course, is going to be followed by a season two, which was greenlit a while back. So there will be a continuation, I'm assuming, of her story, and it will bring us closer to the events of Nexus Dawn, which takes place four years after this series ends. And remember, in Nexus Dawn, we see Neander Wallace as played by Jared Leto. Um, you know, so we see basically the Wallace that we get in 2049 just slightly younger. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting as it gets closer to that to see how, um, you know, how how they kind of bridge the, the divide with those events. But that's kind of, I think that's kind of where we are story-wise. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, was... sorry. Also, Marlo dies. That's something. Just yes. To, uh, so, yeah, two things I missed is Marlo comes back to confront Joseph about Black Lotus. They have a very long fight. Uh, Marlowe dies. He injures Joseph in the process, and also Davis, the officer, um, gets v- vivisected by White Lily, but uh, ends up surviving it and gets commendations for it. But although she's a quadriplegic,
1: yeah, is she the same character as in the comics? Where the woman in the comics has a spine? No, okay, no, that's that's sh- at
0: the Ash Ashina. Oh, you're right, you're right.
1: Um, you can see I'm, how I'm keeping up. Uh, yeah, that's it, it was an interesting arc. Um, much of it was predictable. Um, for me, um, the introduction of White Lily or White whatever was interesting. Um, yeah, yeah uh, I, I want to make some like larger com comments about the show, where I think if this was not a Blade Runner show. If this were a show that's anime, just an animated show, the way it is um, with the story, but it didn't have Blade Runner attached and they changed some names, I would watch this show and think, holy shit, this is amazing. This is great. Um, as a Blade Runner show, I do not believe it is not just not good. I don't believe it's 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 not great and it's not that good. Um, but what I do appreciate about the show is being immersed back into Los Angeles um, in in that time, um, even though there's some issue we have with it in terms of like the blackout, which we can talk about later. Like just essentially, they essentially didn't even, it's like the blackout never even happened in this show. You There was no evidence of it, nothing. Um, but that aside, which we'll get into later, um, it did feel kind of nice being in LA. The, the LA of, Blade Runner and I had some criticisms about the sound design and about the immersion and it got better in the second half for sure. And like there was uh, a few moments in the show where you could hear, you could hear the blimp. You could just, it just, it just, they upped their game a little bit. I don't know how much they are working on this before these, if they're tweaking these episodes before they release, I would imagine they do. I would imagine they they work on these right up until the time that they are released I I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to, we'll have to find that out somehow. So I appreciated that. I appreciated being back in this world. Um, even though the story I didn't really like, um, I, it was nice to have that blip of the Blade Runner world, um, just for, you know, these few weeks, these, I don't know, two and a half months or however long we've had the show going. It's, it's been nice. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm kind of all over with what I with with things that I have to say. I don't really know where to start.
0: Go for it. You, you said you had a lot to talk about. I, I want to just clarify though that it's water lily, not whatever whatever I was calling it. I looked that up as I was saying it. I was like, that doesn't sound quite right. Her name was water lily. Okay, sorry about that. Which
1: is a bit precious. Um, I will say my favorite character in the show is Marlo, which you and I discussed in our green room earlier, um, and it's not because I thought Marlo was awesome. It's because Marlo was different than any blade runner I've seen in the films or this show where he had focus of mind. He was there to kill replicants. That was his job. He took it seriously. He was not morally in, in, in his morality. He was not morally uh, affected or corrupted. He had a job and he was there to do it and he did it. And it was a refreshing to me that he was like, no man, like we're here to do this thing. And, but everyone else is kind of a version of things we've seen before, um, with the exception of L, which I'll get into. Um, but in terms of, again, what I really enjoyed, I did enjoy seeing Marlo kind of bust in on the scene. I didn't like his, his spinner, um, but whatever. That, that was established years ago. Um, he, there's a, he's a, he has a whole archetype attached to who he is. And uh, I, I'm familiar with it. And I just, I enjoyed his presence in the show. It was refreshing amidst all that angst. You know, there's so much angstiness in Black Lotus. And admittedly there is angst in Blade Runner and Blade Runner twenty forty nine, but it's a different kind of angst. It's more of an adult angst. It's less it just it's less tenable. Is that the I think that's the word I want. Is that the word? No. It's less um the Overt. angst it's and the angst in the films is less child childish. Um and it's less audible where for instance, with Elle, she's like, I don't, what do I, where am I, what am I, I don't know, what am I, I blah, blah, blah. shut up. You know, we're <laughs> in the films, you don't hear that at all. There's some angst. There's some, there is some moral ambiguity happening. There's questions happening. And all of that, you can just kind of feel and hear in the ether. And, but in Black Lotus, it's all very audible. It's all kind of vomited Um because they needed l to ask questions so that we could find answers you know um but sticking with um what i loved about the show again with marlo and again with the second half i there's that whole episode which i think is the episode that you loved um where l goes into into the wallace quarters and he kills his wife uh, or she kills his wife
0: the, right? she goes into the police chief's apartment that's right building yeah, yeah. grant
1: Um, And I I loved that whole sequence. I loved how quiet it was. It felt like Blade Runner. It felt unique and different and subtle and not over the top and not overwritten. It was just, and I thought uh, the writing for Elle was right on point. Um, Just, it was fantastic. I loved it. That's probably my favorite episode of the entire series, honestly. Um, And I loved the background. I I, uh, just, the i don't know i don't really know if it's the bradbury building that they're in even though it looks like the bradbury building i guess it's the bradbury building i don't
0: i think it's pretty strongly applied it even has a gargoyle on top okay okay so, okay, so it it's, is it's bradbury the bradbury building, bradbury building yeah. um
1: i loved what they did with that i have a problem with them w- winking oh we're in the bradbury building like we get it it's blade runner we get it we get it like you don't have to do this heavy handed like oh it's Joseph's apartment look it's the same tiles as we get it we get it and that's my problem I've I pretty big problems with Joseph as a character but again I'm trying to like stay focused because I'm similar to you I'm kind of all over with this um but I really the second to the last episode I thought you know this wasn't bad this was all right this was okay I didn't think it was amazing but I but then by the last episode, I was like, no, they missed this. This was a big misstep. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. And I'll pass it to you.
0: Um, yeah, Marlo is uh, is interesting. I also like him a lot. I think anytime he's in a sequence, it becomes better and, and more interesting. Um, you know, kinetic and more interesting. I love his clarity of purpose, like you're saying. I think that's great. It's something that's carried over from the computer game, obviously, and it's something that's, you know, makes him who he is. And it's, you know, I mean, I think that, as I mentioned earlier to you, uh, he's he's just, he's Batman, but getting paid for it, right? Like he's basically just, he swoops in, you know, with his gadgets and he fights and his, you know, cape, his coat is flying all over the place. And he's just an awesome, you know, combat-hardened, you know, guy, um, with, you know, Josh Duhamel voices him in the English language one. he does a really good job with it. Um, you know, he's, he's a cool character. Like he's very cool. I mean, he, he is all of the trope trappings of Blade Runner that people cosplay about, you know, if, if they just like spinners and they like the blaster and they like the trench coat, like, like he has all of those sort of archetypal things going for him. Um, I I, I see what you mean about him being less derivative of other things within Blade Runner. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier, like it, it, there's there's pretty clear precedent for that kind of character in the comic books and, and, and all, basically all of the currently running titles. There's like a dedicated Blade Runner central character who's mm-hmm. like very badass, especially in the Origins comic. But uh, outside of that, you're right. It's just really the video game. And that's kind of it, because the the examples of Blade Runners that we have who are not conflicted like Deckard, you know, we have people You know, we have Gaff, for example. We don't get to see anything that Gaff is, you know, engaged in. We have Holden. You know, Holden is pretty quickly taken out of commission. So we don't really have, you know, a lot of great examples of, like, what Blade Runner's at the top of their game look like. We just hear about it a lot, right? And then the Deckard that we see in in Blade Runner, especially, you know, um, for all the talk about him being great at his job, both in that film and also in 2049, like, he's not particularly good at it. He's just sort of like a private eye, you know, who's he's not like doing crazy flips and shit like we get in the, in the anime series, um, uh, for better or for worse. So yeah, yeah, I mean, Marlo, I think his, his episode six entrance is just like, ext- like that's a moment where I actually like went back and I was like, I got the kids to come and like watch how cool it was. And they were like, yeah, that was awesome. And then they were like, you know, doing flips all over the place, pretending to be him. Um, another really high point for me, I think is episode nine. Let me just double check. Um, could be eight. No, it's, it's probably nine. Uh, It is. So she, so Elle gets into the Wallace headquarters and she goes into the greenhouse area, which was really cool. I I love that sequence. Again, it was very quiet. You know, she goes, she sees the owl, which is, you know, pretty heavy handed, but it's also like, that's iconic Blade Runner imagery. I'm fine with them, you know, using that. Um, And it's a moment of really interesting juxtaposition because it's all verdant and green and, you know, lush and it's silent except for like nature sounds. It feels very interesting to Mm -hmm. me um and then when holden not <laughs> holden when marlo um you know breaks in uh, literally breaks through the glass and comes in and fights her it's like a really fraught sequence it's great i mean there's a lot of fighting in this show there's, as, as you know, I was doing laundry during parts of it because I, I was like, you know, I, I just got to catch up on the episodes that I missed and I have housework to do. So like that's, you know, th- there was enough fighting that I was like, I got like okay with matching socks during those sequences. I'm like, okay, I can hear that they're punching each other. I'm going to like look down and match the socks that I'm putting away. Um, that was a fight sequence where I was not matching socks. I was like raptly watching the the fight. I thought it was really, really great. I thought so too. But as I mentioned earlier to you, um, I don't think on this episode, maybe it was before we recorded the, the confrontation with Marlo and Joseph at the end to me is kind of an example of how to not use that character because he's very talky during it. Um, and also very inept during it. And we have two people fighting who seem to like have goggles on that are you know blacked out or something because they're not like none of the shots are connecting. You have Joseph basically just taking the Bradbury elevators up and down a floor at a time. Like his evasion is like just going one floor down on an elevator, you know. And then and then you have Marlowe like slipping and falling and shooting a lamp off and thing and just like it. It feels not like slapstick, but it feels like well, like they're kind of inept. And in the process of that, they're having this whole conversation about, like, who's more human? is Are they more human than we are? You know, you're so robotic because you, you know, live on this, like, hard value system. You know, I I lost that a long time ago because I learned how to love, and I learned how to love because of a replicant. And because of that, that must mean that they can love too. So who's to say who's the human and who's not, right? They're, they're having, like, the conversation that you're supposed to be having in your head, but they're having it out loud while they're also doing, like, a, a nine- or ten-minute fight sequence that's just basically just shotgun blasts hitting walls. That's like most of that fight. So to me, that's, that's, I'm bringing that up as an example of how Marlowe functions as a great character with episode six and episode nine. And then as a character who's reduced to just those tropey elements that I'm talking about, I think the more he talks, the more he calls attention to it. And that's, that's kind of problematic for me. Um, as far as like the Ennis House tiles and things in the apartment and Joseph's apartment, I mean, like that's, I, I'm okay. Cause it's, you know, that that's building materials that they would have had access to. Like that's just stuff that's sort of in that aesthetic universe. What I do have more of a problem with though is why the Bradbury building had to be a central element. Because as you know, living in Los Angeles, and as I know, having visited a couple of times, like there's plenty of other buildings in Los Angeles. And especially you, know, you see all the flyover sequences in the Los Angeles that we get in 2032, there's buildings everywhere. Like it's a huge metropolis. Why why is does like all of the pivotal action sequences have to happen in this one pretty small apartment building? Like that's something that I find was a little bit distracting. Um going on to Joseph for a moment, I I, I, I don't I don't disagree with you that he's derivative of Deckard, but um I don't I also think I like him more than you might. I, I think that his arc for me was you know it not unpredictable but um but it was at least uh kind of it kind of it, it i i i actually loved that clear Lune episode episode 10 interesting which is it's basically okay. just that extended flashback sequence. i thought that was just like a part of the blade Runner universe that we just never see you know it was kind of reminding me of like the taffy's bar sequence in the first film but that's why a different I, I version of it, it you know Yeah, yeah yeah. But at the end of the day, everything's going to remind you of something, you know, especially if it's, I mean, there's only a certain number of, you know, quick reference tropes that you can, you know, avoid. At some point, things are going to, everything's going to connect, as you and I both say, right? Eventually, everything connects. I, I think, like, it's a lounge singer in a, in a, you know, in a Art Deco sort of nouveau, you know, bar. Um, and I like that, I like that Joseph had this kind of gradual, loosening there where he kept showing up every night and, you know, the easiest target was the last one. You know, as I'm saying all this, there, there is precedent for that kind of overt dialogue in film noir, which is, uh, of course, what, you know, Blade Runner as a whole is aesthetically very closely tied to. Like, you know, the characters say the quiet part out loud a lot. If you watch the Maltese Falcon, for example, right, or, you know, films from that era. A lot of the dialogue, literally, a lot of it's literally voiceover, for one thing, right? A lot of it's, you know, in a city of 4,000 people, you'd think there'd be one dame out there who would, you know, they mm-hmm. they, they talk a lot, right? It's talky. Uh, so Joseph's behavior in that, although he is talking quite a bit, Right. Um, Whether it's on the vid phone or whether it's sort of to himself, it's in keeping with that aesthetic. Like to me, that feels, I think episode, but the reason why I like episode 10 is because it feels like an aesthetically unified statement. It's like this lounge sequence flashback that is about one character's arc. And it's a journey, and I, I think it's interesting to see that Cel- – I think her name is Celine, the lounge singer – that she doesn't put up a fight, you know, at, at, when he finds her, that she kind of accepts it as inevitable. And for all of the replicants that we see, basically all of the other replicants that we have access to in all of the films – are running from that right they're trying to extend their lifespan in some way whereas Celine is saying she's excited about what comes next that that to me felt very fresh actually and it felt like it kind of took something that I assumed was one thing and kind of played with my expectations a little bit.
1: Yeah I understand I didn't hate it at all I didn't even like dislike it I I think I was more kind of like oh okay and what what was jarring to me about that sequence was it just seemed like nightclub you know, in the eighties it didn't seem it didn't have that retrofuturism you know it didn't have that like mishmash of cult like and that's some of the issues i've had with this show where all of a sudden in some some scenes you can get a, a sense of the blade runner that we know in 2019 or 2049 where the costumes work and things are working and, and then they flash to something else and it's like are you in this is this the same world why are these people dressed this way? Why does this just Why does this just look like ev- everyday, average, normal people? Like a lot of people walking on the street. Like the streets in 2032 are full of people, just ordinary-looking people. But then they cut to other scenes, and you got the police, and the and the and the. There's it's raining, and you've got the umbrellas, and it looks more um, in sync with what we've seen before. Um, and I don't mean. And I don't even mean to say that, like, because I'm not seeing what I've seen before. It's not working, because that's there's a fine line there too. uh, As fans, oftentimes fans want they'll complain about not seeing the same thing again. Well, this is just different. So I don't like different. Why doesn't? Where's the world that I missed? And I don't mean to use that voice to make people sound stupid. Um, But it's like people are like, well, what? It's that whole thing. Like
0: people are like, I know
1: people, but fans can be like. I want something new, but keep it the same. I want a new character, but I want it to be a similar character. I really love that ship so in the original movie, so I want to see it again. But go to a new location, but not that new. Like, that's, a, that's fandom. They don't know what they want. Oftentimes, they just want to see regurgitations of the same thing. Blade Runner, so far, except for with Black Lotus, has risen above that. Even though there's a lot in Blade Runner 2049 that echoes what we see in 2019. There's a lot of... Um, There's a lot of uh, poetry. I hate using that term with movies because people overuse that for George Lucas. And it's like, no, it's not fucking poetry. He's just copying what he did before. It's not poetry. Um, But there is poetry in Blade Runner. There poetry in the first two films. Whereas with uh, Black Lotus, it's just more derivative than it is poetic. A lot of my issues when I get down to it with Black Lotus, um, some are very minute, like we talked about before, the signage, the hot dog, coffee, diner, like, and maybe in 20, in the original film, those words in Japanese said that, it said it, so they just use Japanese to say hot dog and diner, but in Japanese, it looks different, or in Chinese, it looks different, it looks more interesting, so you can say mundane words, Written in Japanese or in Mandarin or whatever, and but it doesn't matter what the words say because it looks visually interesting. Now maybe they were f- flipping that. They're like, okay, we're going to do the same thing in English. We're just going to throw those these names that they use, but we're going to do it in English. But it came off hokey. It came off like you're not doing your homework. It came off like this feels lazy. Um, this is not the 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 LA that we're used to. Yeah, and I, I think like we know that. Elle is the protagonist of this story, of this series. She was the least interesting, most banal prop in the in the show. And she was so expositional, so much the voice of the, the audience. And I've said this before. She's like, what is this? Where do I go? What do I do? And I have a real hard time. And yes, I know there were a couple of women writers on the show, but it was primarily men writing the show. And I have a problem with men Heterosexual men writing women who think that women are interesting, and when they do, they're like, well, let's make them forget who they are. Let's give. Let's not give them any agency. They have amnesia. I've seen that over and over and over and over, and it's just exhausting. It's exhausting. That's not how you write good characters. Now, we're in the world of Blade Runner. These are replicants. They have memories that are put in them. There's a whole different set of kind of guidelines and rules in this world. So you can, you you might come across a replicant with not much of a memory. Um, You might come across a replicant who's new in the world. Um, But that's very different. Pris was new in the world, but Pris did not seem vapid or, or she seemed naive in certain ways, but Pris did not come off as. Aggravating or I don't know there's just there's something about her that was really strong and powerful whereas with Elle Elle was just this this husk this kind of body that they used. who was cutesy who wore the same costume almost over the entire 13 episodes except for Two or three times when she changed into a whole outfit to go into Wallace's that even echoed the shorts that she was wearing. And then she was back in the shorts and leotards that were ripped and she kept that cutesy little um, bandaid on her nose the entire time, which was a, th- a throwback to or a nod of the hat to Kay. And these things for me, like this is really what trips me up in this show is that Elle felt so pedantic. Elf felt so underwritten and um, as a female character, just offensive to me as a female character. They could have made her more intelligent. And even like uh, when she goes and she she remembers the, the angel and she goes to see the angel on the side of the building and it's a Victoria's Secret looking angel. You know what I mean? It's so like, so you had to draw an angel that looked like a Victoria's Secret model with wings. You couldn't be a little bit more Cool about this? You couldn't be a little bit more undertone, understated with this representation of what an angel might look like. What what might represent an angel to her? Um, And so some of those choices with the female characters, even White Lily, what Water Lily, water water even Water Lily looked like a Victoria's Secret model. She had this. She was dressed in white, scantily clad, and this is it's also a trope in anime for sure. But this. This is not just anime. This is Blade Runner. And Blade Runner has focus put on it for the representation of women. So I felt like the women in Black Lotus, aside from Davis, but like the women were all pitted against each other in Black Lotus. Davis kind of wanted to help Elle a little bit. And for a moment, they were kind of had each other's back, but they didn't and they didn't really get along. And then Water Lily... Skewers Davis, like that's another problem I have with with uh, typically men who write female characters. They think giving women agency or making them powerful means not not binding not binding them together, but not having them work together. And women are stronger together. We all are stronger together as people. But what writers think is, no, we need to separate them and put animosity towards them. I even I would have had a better time with Water Lily being a male than water lily being a female let's put two women together and have them fight um and they're really sexy and barely wearing anything either i just had real problems with that with that trope that they're doing and i think for me it's what mired the show um as i watched it even though there were things that i enjoyed about it i'll stop there and i'll give it to you for now because there's more i want to say
0: keep going keep going Patrick's, I gotta please keep going. Um, <laughs> no, I, so, I mean, finish your point. Cause I have, I have, you know, responses to things, but, uh, but I, I think, but keep, keep going with what you're no, talking I
1: about. No, I mean, so as I watched the show, then able to enjoy things here and there, um, I was just really, really, really super, super annoyed with Elle. I really didn't like her. I don't like her as a character. She feels grating right. to me. She feels whiny. She feels, um, she doesn't. She's then saved by Joseph, you know, a couple of different times. Like she becomes this damsel in distress, like fuck that like and of course they fucking fall
0: in love that was something else that just bothered me so like just briefly I am with no go ahead ahead. it bothered me so much because I was really hoping that that wasn't gonna happen I was like for all of the all of the tropes that this thing is falling into like don't let that be another one and then he has the whole romance with Celine and I was like oh fuck this is like repeating itself and then in his like vision they're holding hands and like cuddling in a field I'm like god damn it like why 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 does why does she also have to be an object of desire for for him as opposed to just him like doing the right thing for the right. Re- Cause that's the thing is that like, we're supposed to look at Joseph as this protagonist character. Like we're supposed to identify with him, but he only does the right thing because he is like attracted to these replicants that he's trying to save. That's not progress, right? Like if you're going to save somebody because you want to have sex with them, that doesn't mean that you all of a sudden have this enlightened view of, 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 you know, an entire subtype of person. It means you want to have sex with somebody. So you want them to survive. That's obviously a reductive way to look at it. But with Elle, there was this nice feeling that I had, although she was kind of a damsel in distress and she, and he was helping her where I was like, well, maybe he just wants to help, you know, maybe there is no ulterior motive. And then of course, like it does end up coming out that like he was attracted to her and that and it just it was another one of these things that you know it's it's easy to get tripped up by your own expectations i think but that was just an expectation that i had that i i I, like i like knew i was going to be cranky about because i knew it was going to happen and Mm -hmm. then it did and i was like well there we go yeah
1: i mean i don't i have less to say about that i there was so much there were there are so many other things that were annoying me that that was kind of like whatever it's just kind of another one of those things um in the show, uh, as you know, as, as you kind of go on with it, I mean, again, I'll, I'll kind of get back to the environment of Los Angeles. Now, we know based off 2049 and the short films, notably Nexus Dawn and also um, the Blackout anime um, that came before 2049 premiered, there has been a blackout and it's not just been someone flipping off the lights. Oh no, it's a blackout. It was a explosion. It rocked the city and rocked the whole region and things were just destroyed and housed out. There is no evidence in black Lotus that that has happened. There's no disc. There's a mention of it here and there, but you're like, where they don't really address it. And this is the, here's, this is the issue with going into a story Like going into an IP like Blade Runner that needs a lot of like scalpels as a writer. And I'm not, and I don't mean clinic, but you're not being clinical. You're making sure that creatively everything's connecting creatively. This is working as a piece of art that's elevating our experience in this show. There were several writers thrown in. um, And I think that I'm sure that they did that the best they could. But you can kind of tell that this world did not have the same care that Michael Green and Hampton Fancher and Denis Villeneuve and Ridley Scott, who all brought both of those films to fruition, knowing that the story was important. And I'm not saying that the writers on Black Lotus didn't know that the story was important. What I'm responding to, I think, as... A, as my general response to the show in general is it's Blade Runner dumbed down. It's Blade Runner for children. But the problem is you don't have children watching the show. The majority of the people watching the show are adults and they're the fans. Um, So this show is made for us. It's not made for 13 year olds. Um, Yeah. Okay. It's made for people who watch Crunchyroll. Most of the people who watch and have subscriptions to Crunchyroll are over like 32. I think based off what I've read, Um, they're adult people. This show was made for, and so I would, I am most disappointed that instead of having this really good Bible and a really good story put together by people like Michael Green or Hampton Fancher or David Peoples, for all I care, um, and they took that Bible and they took that really, really well written, well thought out um, story to this animation company and saying, this is the story we have. We have a pilot written already. This is Michael Green or whomever. Um, they are going to be one of the showrunners, but we would love you guys to a- animate and direct this based off these scripts. They didn't do that, and you can tell. And that's my biggest issue with the show.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's important to, to recognize that the the blackout isn't necessarily like it wasn't like a physical bomb explosion it, wasn't well, it was not like there were craters created no it, it was a data blackout it was that the satellite was taken down yeah, and but, data systems around the world went yes, offline yes
1: that too but don't you remember in the anime when it actually happens there are explosions happening all over the city remember
0: there are but it's not like a nuclear holocaust no no it's not like, nuclear it's, yeah, no. it's it's but and, and and you know don't forget that there's been over a decade since the events in that so like yeah. you know the city would rebuild itself quite a bit mm-hmm. Um, so I, am not so much bothered by the physical reality of the city as I am by the lack of awareness of the characters of what happened or the, or the, or the fact that we don't see more, I mean, when it's brought up, it's like jarring, it's brought up in like the second to last episode maybe. And it's like, there was a blackout, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. And it just feels very like, you know, like, oh. Wow, that came out of nowhere because it's not re- like if you had lived, for example, OK, here we go. We're, we we are living through covid-19 at the moment. Right. This is something that will come up like all the fucking time for a long time. Right. Even well after we've moved past it and whatever that looks like, people will still be talking about the lockdowns and the quarantines and what happened. And that was without the physical destruction of our infrastructure. Yes. That was just like something that happened to us. Right. Right. Uh, like this is a world that was completely shattered and it wasn't even just the blackout. Obviously it was all of the, you know, the anti-replicant, um, you know, the, the violence that was happening, the, the streets, famine. it was the ransacking, it was the fam. yeah. The global health crisis. It was all of these huge, these huge concurrent events that, um, are only referenced very, very scarcely in, in, uh, Black Lotus. Like they, they come up as after what really feels to me to be afterthoughts. Now, what I think, you know, you're talking about the way the story's constructed and not having a Bible and things like that, or not, not not seeming to come out of like a creative, you know, Bible that the same thing that Hampton Fancher, for example, was working on. I think to me, what I what I feel with this show is that the writers got their story and they got sucked into their story and sucked out of the world in which that story is taking place a little bit. Because it, it as it goes on, it really feels more and more like it's basically just about these characters and the Blade Runner-ness of it is something that's sort of, it's visual, right? It's something that you can like look at it and see rain and neon umbrellas and you know, Sid Mead looking spinners and be like, oh, it's Blade Runner. Okay, fine. So what's the what's the real story going on? Whereas as we talk about all the time, the environment in Blade Runner is a, is a huge part of the storytelling and it informs a lot of the uh, decisions that people make and the lifestyles that they have and the reasons why they act the way that they act. Like they feel like, you know, in the films, they feel like real denizens of that world. Whereas in this, it was like they were a bunch of characters from an anime movie who happened to have this kind of backdrop mm-hmm. around them. Um, and you're absolutely right. Like the blackout would be something that would be talked about, you know, endlessly, and it would be dealt with endlessly. And there would be all these people would be talking about replicants all the time, as opposed to just being like, there's no replicants left. What are you talking about? You know, like, that. like, that's like a line of dialogue that comes up, like, like who's left, like Marlowe's like, who's left to hunt? You know, like there's that's something that is so so flippant. Whereas in reality, it would be like, we have to make sure that there are no replicants because of this mass near extinction event that happened. This is something that is like driving the society, right? Um, And and like anything else, like it's not like those, you know, I I don't know if you can call it racist, but those like, you know, speciest tendencies that led to the events of the blackout where humans were hunting replicants down because of all these different reasons. Those undercurrents would still be everywhere. We would see graffiti all over the place. I mean, in this one, they're referred to as skin jobs a couple of times by Marlowe. But other than that, like, it seems like people kind of just don't really care about replicants. They're like, oh, eh, whatever. Um, and that kind of nonchalance, I think, translates to the viewing, the viewing experience. And it becomes more about just this this anime and less about the world in which it takes place and, and all of the the wonderfully dynamic and deep philosophical conundrums that accompany a world like that. Um, I also, I, I have to complain about the music, which is something that I didn't want to do because I know that I'm like the token composer on this thing. And, and, and that, you know, it's it, whatever, it's predictable that I would complain about it, but it really isn't very good. I don't think, I, I think that the pop songs I, I, I actually like kind of like, I think that like the way they do the smash credits at the end of every episode is like really cool. And it feels not like Blade Runner, but it feels like dynamic to me. And it feels like something that a lot of people would you know, gravitate towards. I love the intro credits. I think those are really, really great. Um, I like the lounge singing stuff. I don't think that the actual music that accompanies the series feels at all connected to it, like at at all. It feels like it's just sort of ambient, you know, drone pads using some plugins that sound kind of like the, the you know, same plugin or the same synthesizers that Vangelis used. Just sort of like that are kind of there. And then when there's action happening, there's like a two, 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 Mm-hmm. behind it and that's like that's it right the music there's no motivic development in it there's no um there's no art it's just it's just sort of ambiance and that to me it says the same thing that the setting says to me which is that there is there's it's not that there's no art because there's clearly tons of care taken in the environments and in and, and the look of it but it's feels like more artifice to me than it feels like art Mm -hmm. because you can get away with a lot of things if you're making stuff look good. And I think one of the things you get away with is like being able to cut corners and those corners that are cut show when you're really watching it. Like you said, you see people wearing like, you know, completely regular, you know, pedestrian street clothes. You see like a great, a great thing that you mentioned that I wanted to go back to was the fact that like nobody's outfits change at all during this entire series, right? Doc Badger always has that tank top on. Joseph always has that coat, and he's just smoking continuously throughout the entire thing. You have Wallace, who is wearing a hoodie from the beginning to the end of this entire series, that same exact hoodie. You have, uh, you know, L wearing those tights and the jean shorts, that basically in, in, you know, almost an unaltered form the entire time. And then you have Davis wearing what looks like a cop uniform from three years ago. Like, it's just a sweater vest with, like, a coat, right?
1: Yeah. Um, a, law and order victim, a law and order victims unit outfit. Yeah, it just looks yeah.
0: completely like what Out of people place. wear now, you know. You yeah. know? Um, and, and it all like, uh, like anything, we wouldn't be talking about this if the story had been sucking us up so much that we hadn't even like been able to notice it, but because the story was like boring us or because we felt disconnected or we felt like it was, you know. Becoming predictable, we start being like, okay, what else is there to pay attention to? And then you realize like the stuff that we should be paying attention to, like the music or like the you know the the actual setting that it's in, feels two dimensional. And that to me is the biggest problem with Black Lotus as a whole. I personally find that with a lot of anime. I know I'm I'm going to be offending a ton of people in saying that. I also am saying that as somebody who is not an anime aficionado, and I know that I am blind to a lot of the things people love about it. So I'm wrong. From, from a lot of people's perspective, and I totally own that. I'm saying for me personally, great example is Godzilla, right? As you know, I'm literally, literally wearing a shirt that says Godzilla in Japanese right now. Like, I'm a huge Godzilla fan, right? You know that. You, you've been to our house. You see all my shit everywhere. I fucking love Godzilla, mm-hmm. right? The Godzilla uh, anime series that Netflix put out, there's a few installments of it. I could not even get through two episodes. I was like, this is so stupid. It's like everybody is saying everything, all yeah. the time, yeah. and they're all trying to look as cool as they can while they're saying it, right? And a great example of that, and again, I'm I'm saying this, I know that I have Western eyes that are not anime trained, I know I'm a white guy, I know that I have biases and blind spots, so please take what I'm saying with that in mind. But from where I sit, as somebody watching this, um, th- this was falling into a lot of those traps, right? Like, there's no reason Joseph needs to look as, like, prototypically cool as he does all the time right he's a fucking washed out person why does he have to like have perfectly coiffed hair and like be smoking and be like drinking and like look like this like you know like rock star why can't he just be like a fucking schlub like and and why does he have to look like a model when he shaves and he gets his flashbacks you know why does marlo have to look perfect all the time why does Elle have to be like incredibly beautiful look like she looks like a fucking k-pop star or something yeah she She looks like a uh, barbie doll she's a she's a, she's a barbie doll yeah why can't they be complex? Why does, I mean, Neander Wallace is a great example of that, right? Wallace Jr. Like he, it, which pains me to say that, but whatever, I'll call him that. He, like, you know, I, I mean, it's not like Jared Leto isn't, isn't an attractive looking guy. Like I, I totally get that. But he doesn't like, it doesn't seem like it's about that when he's acting in the You're actual show. You're not distracted show, is, by it, yeah. No, but whereas this, I'm like, why does he look like he just came from a fucking Maxim shoot or something, or like a GQ shoot? Like, why why does everything have to look perfect all the time? And when he gets mad, like, why, why does he... Ugh, like I'm okay, I don't want to get too negative, but I, I feel like the way that he emotes feels so two dimensional to me. And I say this as a specific complaint on Wes Bentley in the English language version, who I think is a great actor. I His delivery him. of it is so fucking stupid. It's like it's like a it's like a cardboard version of what Jared Leto did, which which felt actually really inspired. And even if it was idiosyncratic, like it felt like it was there for a reason to me. What were you gonna say? No, I I
1: think the problem with Wallace in this show is that they reduced him just to that just to these, I'm going to say this, this very liturgical sounding, biblical sounding sentence. And I'm going to say another one. and I'm going to say another one. and I'm going to say another one. And that's all I'm going to say. They've yeah. made him a a stereotype of Wallace and not an actual person. Um, and I think to some of the points that you're making about why do they all look perfect? Why do they have this? Some of that is because of the, the nature of anime you see that a lot in anime um where and some well some anime i can't watch because it does feel stupid it just feels like it's overly emotive it's overly everything it's, it's huge it's like it's it's at a 10 when i prefer to see something at like a five really good anime to me is at a five um and they're not overly but the problem here is you have the tropes of anime meshed in with Blade Runner and they don't work well together. They don't work. Blade Runner is not, I mean, the whole contention of the theatrical cut of the original and the final cut is the removal of, and other things obviously, but the removal of the voiceover Um, and the voiceover was very, tends to be very obvious. It's obvious. Oh, this is what I'm thinking. I'm Deckard right now. And I, I shot her in the back and yeah, what about Rachel? You know, but seeing that it's not, there's not a ton of, of, Of uh, voiceover in the original there's a a little bit and it doesn't even jar me honestly but with this it's just like we're going to write this script so that five-year-olds can understand what's happening and we're and that's what it feels like and sometimes anime can feel that way it's very like I remember watching the Voltron when I was a kid um, and that was sourced to a Japanese it was very much anime very kind of
0: five-year-olds though remember yeah
1: I mean probably a little older but still Blade Runner is high sci-fi. It's high sci-fi. And the question that I come to is a question that I posed to both of us, to all of us, even our contributing host, Peter, when he's been on, or Dr. Robin Bunce, or Micah when she's been here. Blade Runner's bar is really, really, really high based on those films. So how do we enter this show? Do we enter the show knowing how hard that bar is? Do we kick it down a few notches because it's anime and it's on crunchy roll is that what we is that what we're supposed to do like because i see people making kind of a concession like oh it's anime and okay so I, I should expect less is that what you're saying what do you want what because it doesn't work it ultimately doesn't work it becomes very show and tell which we have just discussed like let's show them and let's tell them everything so we can't. We we don't. We're not afforded the opportunity to ask questions because Elle's asking all those questions for us, and Joseph's answering all those questions for us. There's no. There's very little space for us to kind of dwell. But at at the same time, we can dwell in 2049 or in 2019 because there's a lot going on in that environment, that city. That environment, it's a character of its own. It's living. It's moving. It's speaking to us. In Blade Runner, that city, it does not speak to us. That city is incidental. Black Lotus. Uh, Black Lotus, I'm sorry. Yes, the city's incidental. The music is, like you said, it's very ambient, like they got like a keyboard and they're like, let's press A for like five, (coughs) yeah, for like three minutes. And I get it at the same time to pull back. This was a big, big thing. Mm. To enter this world is a Big, huge ask. There's so much expectation. There's so much pressure. I understand. That's a lot of pressure to be under. We did an audio drama called Gethsemane, set in the world of Blade Runner. And even though no one was paying me to do it, no one was paying us to do it, I felt the pressure that this had to live up to the name of Blade Runner. And I feel like it did. Um, But part of that was writing characters that felt intelligent, that felt like it was speaking to our intelligence, that felt like it was respecting us as intelligent beings. And the problem with black loaders is none of those, none of it, very little of it, felt like it was engaging my intellect, engaging my respect asking of me it was just telling me it was just telling me the whole time it wasn't asking it was telling and that's ultimately the disconnect i mean and i could go on about other things i mean that I, that i for instance wallace i i'm right i think that they completely demystified him and they didn't need to answer why he was blind they didn't uh, i i don't and giving him the father just kind of if it it castrated him you know um we didn't he didn't need a father or even if he had a father or whatever Let's not hear about it like I would have much preferred the show following Gaff or Holden make the show about Holden. But the problem is not the problem, but the issue is we live in a time and place where uh, diversity and and um, representation are a big deal. And I mean, I'm half black and I am gay, so I get it. I get it. But. And I also love the idea of following a female replicant. I love that. I think as an idea, it works. It didn't work with L because they didn't make her a character. They just made her a vehicle. They made her an avatar. She was empty and she was a shell and there was nothing to her. Um, and there was nothing. Pris had more more character and a look and a glance than Elle had for this entire 13 episodes. And again, I'll pivot back to this idea of the show was telling us it wasn't speaking to us. It wasn't engaging us. It was telling us this is Blade Runner and this is this character and that's where she's going. And this is LA and this is this and this is that. Oh, and that's Dr. Badger. Oh, and look, that's That's Kay's apartment right there. And that's all it feels reduced to despite some really amazing um, moments and episode seven and or nine i don't know whatever episode that was
0: which
1: one uh where uh l goes to the police officer's home to That's six six okay episode six yeah. which i you know watch the sh- watch that one episode everybody it's great um but I, I i i i i almost feel like i need to kind of rest my case um i love this i love this world um as do you um i also know that everyone involved in the show loves the world and they tried that they tried their best. Um, I, I am a little bit nervous about 2099, uh, honestly, um, because of this, I think uh, blade runner needs a good story. It's, it's not a vehicle to the, it's not blade runner. Shouldn't be a vehicle to, to be, to be for messaging, tell a good story, engage us as people, engage our an inherent spirit that is, um, our spirit is there and has nothing to do with our gender or our or our experience. We have this human spirit. Engage that and then build out from that. If they're going to go into twenty ninety nine with messaging with like, like oh we're this is going to be about this so and so and um blah like it's going to be commentary the 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 most beautiful thing about blade runner is we give our own commentary we take from these movies what who we are in some ways much of what we can decipher and interpret from these films um, come from our own life experience. That's how it speaks to us. And for you, that might be, and I know for you and me, they can, they're can. they different. There are also a lot of similarities between us with Micah, with even our former our former host, Dan. We all brought different things, but none of those things that we brought or, or spoke about or discussed were things the film was telling us. It was things that we were, we were telling it. It was bringing out of us. And Black Lotus didn't really bring anything out except for oh look that was that's cool or oh look that's interesting oh look that's Wallace and I, I to your point I feel like I kind of have to rest my case.
0: <laughs> well, we can rest it then.
1: Do you, you have anything else to say?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think a, a big problem with the show, uh, but, uh, but I'm not I'm not saying this as an excuse for it because it's not because many of many of my favorite works of art ever are animated. Um, So this is not an excuse for it. But much of good acting comes from subtextual acting. Much of good acting comes from things that aren't said. Ryan Gosling is a great example of an actor who's amazing at doing that, right? There's like a, you know, a maxim in acting where if you think the sentence that you're supposed to be saying, the camera will register that you said it, right? A lot of great acting takes place in these very subtle micro expressions and in these very Deep moments where, you know, the, part, part of why Harrison Ford is so emotive in Blade Runner, even though he's very understated through most most of it, is because he's got a very active inner life that mm-hmm. comes through his face. So like, you'd you know that he's thinking about something or that he's trying not to think about something. And the way in which this was animated made it really impossible to do that. Like it, impossible to do that. It, it took away that subtextual acting. And took it to this very tropey place where it's like people just look, like you said, angsty through most, most of it. Um, and where there were, because like the, the the faces weren't able to emote subtly like like normal human faces would, they had to say things or they felt they had to say things a lot to fill in those gaps. Um That being said, even within the realm of anime, you know, I mean, if you look at the the Studio Ghibli films, for example, right, I'm an enormous fan of that stuff. And that has plenty of subtextual quiet moments in it where characters glance at each other and they say a a lifetime's worth of things, you know. Um, You look at great television animation, things like, you know, uh, like Over the Garden Wall or things like Adventure Time, these things that, that go into these very subtle emotional places at the flip of a quarter. And they do it because it is... Constructed in a way where it's able to tell the story without telling us what it's trying to say, you know? And if you don't have like an animation format that works for that, and this is something, you know, I mean, a close analog to this would be something like the Robert Zemeckis movies, you know, like, um, like, uh, uh, Polar Express or, um, Beowulf, right? These movies where there's this sort of like uncanny Valley facial animation going on. Uh, Even I think they do a much better job of expressing that than this does. This, to me, at the end of the day, felt flat. And I I mean that across a number of different vectors. One of the first ones being the same complaint that we had the first time footage was ever shown, that the character models looked bad. Like, that was the case throughout the entire thing that was just always a problem for me i never felt like i was looking at humans i always felt like i was looking at kind of like these you know plastic shapes that were doing kind of human movements but it didn't feel human to me um which is probably part of why we like marlo so much because you know when he was usually it was in darkness and also he was moving quickly and it was combat based and there wasn't really time to focus on the fact that he looked kind of weird when he was talking right that's just a problem with this show going forward, you know, for the next season and whoever, however many seasons are after that, I I hope they can address that a little bit. I really do. I hope that they can take the time to add that third dimension that it's missing across all those different categories that I was, you know, mentioning. So not just the character animations, but also things like the sound design or the music or the atmosphere or the philosophical subtext, give it lots of layers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, one of my one of my heroes is Jada Bumrad who does Radio Lab he actually just retired from it after 20 years but it's like always been my favorite you know podcast and radio show i've just loved it since i was a student and he ha- he talks a lot about when he's producing a story you can't stop when you get the first answer. You have to think about, like, what does that answer mean? And then think about it again. And think, like, well, what does that mean about that, what that answer meant? And do it until you can't go any further, and then that's the story you tell, right? You tell a story that's eight layers removed from the story people thought they were going to get. And then everything else, we fill it in because we're humans and because we, we bring ourselves to it. That's a huge order of to give an animated television series on Adult Swim and Crunchyroll. That's crazy, right? But at the same time, go three or four layers. Like, give us a little bit of room to inject ourselves into it and to have to put pieces together for ourselves, right? Don't give us full episodes that are just recapping everything. Don't give us exposition burps every 10 seconds. Like, don't make our protagonist so clueless that... Because the thing is that because Elle is so clueless, which is a storytelling, you know, idea in this, right, that she has this amnesia, like, because of that, we are treated like we are also clueless the entire time because she's the cipher for us. So we are always just being repeated like, oh, there was this hunt. Oh, it was orchestrated by the Wallaces oh, It was actually because of this. Oh, it was because of that. Oh, it's because it was an assassination. Oh, it's because he wanted to get control of the company. Oh, it's because he has a messiah complex. Oh, it's because Waterlily was the next model. Like all of these things that are just kind of shoehorned in for us as exposition, they, they don't need to be right. The Wallace that we see in 2049 has no exposition attached. There's literally no exposition attached to him at all. We are presented with this monk like person in a water filled chamber, and we are just we just have to deal with that as people. Like we have to assume that there's a lot. Lot of reasons for it, right? Mad Max Fury Road, I, another movie I bring up a lot, is one of my favorite films, is a great example of this, where there's just like absolutely no exposition like there is no explanation for anything that's happening there's no explanation of the background of things until later in the movie there's no we don't know what happened to the world we don't know why everything looks the way it does we don't know even where this fits in you know with the other with the other Mad Max films until we kind of piece things together later on it's like we're thrown into the very deep end of a very deep pool but there's a reason why it's deep right That depth is what makes great art great art, because that depth is where we, in our subjective viewing of the art, lie. So... How, does that, how do you reconcile that with a long-form anime scripted series? I don't know. But I'm also not one of the great creators of anime. And like we have many of them attached to this project. We have many very deep thinkers who have produced great work before. And they can do it again with Blade Runner. It's not like this is a closed door whatsoever. But it's a door that if they keep it open, they have to give it more attention and care and treat it less like it's just a serialized you know, cop drama with cool vehicles in it and more like it's a story about the human condition that we have to, as viewers, fill in the blanks ourselves because we are humans and because this is the condition we are living in. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. I agree. And uh, I I do want to close with this. Um,
1: You know, the Muppets, I know the Muppets, everyone's grown up with the Muppets or a lot of people have, and the Muppets are these very static things. Why do we love the Muppets? Why do we love these things that don't emote at all? They have no expression, but yet we can look at them and we can smile and we can laugh and we can hear them talk in their very plasticky, whatever they are, you know, kind of flap jawed, you know, talking. We can see Kermit talk, but there's so much love in there. There's so much us of us in Kermit or Piggy or Janet or everyone. Um, and they are very simply made basic puppets. There's no animatronics in them, but we can engage our humanity. Well, while we, when we engage with them, if they can be successful with the Muppets, they can do a show called Blade Runner, Black Lotus. And maybe their budget is like, we can't go into that depth. So if you can't go into that kind of facial animation, then figure out another way. Because if we can emote and find ourselves in a, in a, three-dimensional, very boring-looking puppet, we can do it with this show. And so the issue is they they couldn't figure that out, and so their, their, their option was, well, let's just tell them everything. Um, lastly, I don't know who's listening to this who has worked on the show or who is a part of Alcon, Um, I think that they know at this point by listening to us, if you are listening to this, because we do know that some people from Alcon and from the show have listened to our show, our podcast before I, I hope that they know. And I think that they do that. We love blade runner. Um, we, even though black Lotus might not have been as successful as we would have liked. I'm glad that it was made. I'm glad that the IP was extended. I think, um, there's something to say. I think it needs, to be, it, needs, it needs to be workshopped a little bit more. But I also hope as an artist myself, and I know you are as a composer and a writer, um, I love critique. I've recently finished a feature length script that um, I trying to get feedback on. Um, I want to hear when things don't work, but I also want to hear in a way that, hey, I'm with you. I support you. But this isn't working. So in that spirit is how we come to you tonight to say, hey, we honor what you guys have tried to do. We just don't think it was up to par. Um, and hopefully, oftentimes you see with like kind of the industry, quote unquote, any anything that's they perceive as negative, they won't even hear. They won't even listen to. They won't even like take seriously. Oh, it's someone else's fault. Oh, they can't. They're not listening. They're not reading. They're not understanding. But I think that there's a a nice balance there where you can really hear what people have to say and not take offense at that opinion. And they're not saying you're a bad person. You're not saying you're not talented. They're just saying it could be better. And that's all I'm saying about the show. And I'm passionate about Blade Runner. I feel like at this point in my life, I know what Blade Runner is. It's also different things to different people. But I think within that sphere of opinion, we all come together and that's what Blade Runner is together. And it's what you believe it is, Patrick. It's what I believe it is. It's what Micah believes it is. It's what Dan believes it is. And all of those opinions can Work together to recreate this world that we love, and all I think I and I'll say we are saying is, it could be a little bit better. It could, it needs a little bit more work, and we're hope that, we hope that you're listening. We would love you back on the show, if you know to discuss it. Um, just talk about it. Talk about our love for Blade Runner, if or not or whatever. But I I just it's really important for me that the creators and the producers and the studios know that this isn't. Gatekeeping. We're just we're passionate about this world and we love it as much as you do.
0: Amen. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for um, listening. And just before we go, a super special shout out to John Martino who just joined our Patreon a couple days ago. Thank you, John. He joins uh, other recent people like Jason Judah and others who um, have joined the last couple weeks. And uh, I gotta say, you know, just today we were you know using Patreon money to help produce the score for the next audio drama. So that's a very direct, personal. Reason to thank you for that, and uh, and to let you know that this stuff's going right back into the work that we hope you get to enjoy. So, thank you to all of our patrons. Oh, and and we have new Sublime Noise coming out. Uh, if you if you missed it, we just had one come out a couple of days ago. It was on the score to Under the Skin, really exciting. We're gonna have some more, including some Johnny Greenwood scores potentially coming up soon. So there's a lot to look out for. So uh, if you want to join, make sure you go to Blade Runner Podcast dot com slash support and you can join right there and uh and you'll have immediate access to all the stuff we're talking about thanks everyone
1: if you would like to find out more about shoulder of orion the blade runner podcast please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.